I opened to Jeremiah. Um, Exodus chapter 18, if you'll turn there. We are looking at the judges, and we're looking at Moses as really the first judge of Israel. Um, there might even be a kind of, a, there might be a little bit of an argument for Joseph fulfilling that role too, to a degree, when you consider the conduct and, and attitudes of his brothers. Uh, but uh, we're going to start off where Israel is a full-formed nation, and uh, look at Moses. We looked last week at his calling and the aspects of that, of his um, qualifications that God looked at his uh, preparations. And while Moses uh, played them down, uh, God said, no, you're the one and you're, you're the one I've uh, had set aside really from birth. And that is not an unusual situation among the judges for them to be set aside. Samuel and Samson, of course, come to mind very quickly. Um, and so we find uh, God has selected his man. Um, and we saw last week, I hope, I don't know that I spent a lot of time on it, uh, the <laughs> close call that Moses came to, that he made up so many excuses, God got angry. He says, okay, you're going, but your brother will do all the talking. Um, and it's almost as though God was about ready to, to just smite him dead on the spot if he just went against him anymore. And so um, we find Moses going into Israel. You all are familiar with the account of the Exodus. And I want to pick up um, after the Red Sea crossing. So Pharaoh is, is gone. And we did have a couple of encounters with the, pe with the leadership of Israel questioning Moses a little bit during the... Um, period of the plagues, but we really find that challenged and expanded and developed in the uh, wilderness period, uh, and starting right away even before the giving of the law in Sinai. And so in chapter 18, we find them uh, in the, on the Sinai Peninsula, which isn't the Sinai Peninsula we know, it's, it's the Sinai on the east side, which is modern-day Saudi Arabia, but we find them there. Um, he has basically taken the people back to where he was living for all those years and keeping sheep and in the land of Jethro, which, remember, that's what he was doing when he saw the burning bush and was called up to it. And so he takes them back to that mountain. Um, God said to go get them and bring them out, and this seems like a pretty reasonable place to take them. Uh, this is where God sent me from. I'll go back there. So he arrives, and, of course, Jethro, his father-in-law, is nearby, and he comes in for a visit. And we have the engagement between Moses and Jethro. Um, and Moses recounting all that God did, destroying Pharaoh's uh, uh, chariots and uh, all the stuff that happened in the uh, plagues. And Jethro's response in verse 10 was, Blessed be the Lord, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And verse 11, Now I know that the Lord is greater than all the gods, for in this very thing in which they behaved proudly, he was above them. <clears throat> so Jethro recognized something. When he started listening to the account of Moses, he was saying, You know, the God that called you to this task has humbled the Egyptians in every 
case in areas that they were proud about. They were proud about the Nile River, and so that was, they were proud about all these areas and these things. These were their foreign gods, and God just used them against them. And so he says, you have humbled the Egyptians. You are above all the things that the Egyptians uh, worshipped and took pride in, and, um, and God's above them all. And so um, if there's any act of conversion, it'd be in verse 12, then Jethro, Moses' father, took a burnt offering and offered other sacrifice to offer to God. He says, he's the one true God. I want to offer sacrifices to him. And he does that there. And uh, Aaron comes up with the elders of Israel. He bred with Moses' father-in-law before God. And so God accepted that offering. It says God was there. God was accepting that. Um, well, there's not necessarily a physical presence, but certainly a spiritual presence there, that it was an acceptable offering. And that's going to be key to what's to follow. And so let's pick up on that in verse 13. And so it was on the next day that Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood before Moses from morning until evening. So Moses' father-in-law saw all that he did for the people. And he said, what is this thing you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit and all the people stand before you from morning until evening? And Moses said to his father, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a difficulty, they come to me and I judge between one another and I make known the statutes of God and his laws. So Moses' father-in-law said to him, the thing you, you do is not good. Both you and these people who are with you will surely wear yourselves out. For this thing is too much for you. You are not able to perform it by yourself. Listen out of my voice, I will give you counsel and God will be with you. Stand before God for the people so you may bring the difficulties to God. And you shall teach them the statutes and laws and show them the way in which they must walk and the work they must do. Moreover, you shall select from all the people able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness, and place such over them to be rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, and rulers of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Then it will be that every great matter they bring to you, but every small matter they themselves shall judge, so it will be easier for you for they will bear the burden with you. If you do this thing, and God so commands you, then you will be able to endure, and all those people will also go to their place in peace. So Moses heeded the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. And Moses chose able men out of all Israel, made them heads over the people, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of tens. So they judged the people at all times, the hard cases they brought to Moses, but they judged every small case themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went his way to his own land, land of Midian. So we have a, a very interesting uh, occur, uh, perspective on the role of a judge. And we're going to see this. We often think of the, he was a judge Israel, and that is true. What we're going to also find when we get into the book of Judges is how regional that really was for most of the judges. But here, Israel isn't spread out in the land. They're all encamped around a single mountain, and uh, so they're all coming to the judge and recognizing that that's what God has done. He has set up Moses as judge over them. And so um, Moses takes that fully on his shoulders and, and thinks that must be my job. And so all day long he is settling these disputes between the people and making these judicial calls. Um, and as you read, it's just too much. And so we find his father-in-law coming in with this wisdom from the Lord, and we cannot miss the two things that he says. He says, um, if the Lord commands you to do this, so it has to be, it's not just my advice, um, 
You go to the Lord and ask him. Remember, Moses was meeting every day. Um, and so was it hard for him to ask the Lord, is this right? I know it's not recorded here as part of his implementation of the plan, um, but it is implied in the statement of Jethro. And so he says, the Lord's going to bless you, bless these people. And so you as a judge are going to preside. Um, and so he ends up being the Supreme Court, if you will. He is that court that uh, has the last say in these matters, but not every matter has to come up to that level. Most things can be resolved very easily. And so he takes on the role of judge in addition to that intermediary between God and Israel that we're going to develop a little bit later. Um, but this is his role. And we often think about the judge's role as delivering Israel from her enemies, and that is certainly militarily an important facet of that. And we're going to see that again when we get into the wilderness wanderings. What happens? Moses is out there. They're in battle. What is it all dependent upon? Not his swinging of his sword. It's dependent upon him of doing what? Holding up the staff with the serpent on it. And, and, as long, and, and you have him holding up his staff, and as long as the staff is up, they're winning. And so soon you got some guys up there, Joshua helping him hold his arm up. Um, and remember, Joshua's a mighty man of war. And it was better for Israel to have him holding Moses' arm up than be out there swinging his sword. Okay? And so um, that's how potent that is. And that's what we need to see, the value of these judges in relation to delivering Israel from her enemies. We don't want to diminish that. That is still very much a facet of their menace, of their work, of their calling. And it didn't go away when Pharaoh was destroyed. It's going to persist all the way through. And then we're going to find that another facet is this idea, not only of delivering from your enemy, but also delivering you from your own injustices that there is an internal part of their ministry to recognize that um, the disputes within Israel um, were just as devastating as their disputes with their enemies. That if we allow this infighting and these disagreements to happen, um, they can destroy the fabric of a society of a nation very quickly when there is not justice in the land. And as we go into the period of the prophets instead of the period of the judges, what is one of the things God says moves him to judgment? What moves him to his wrath was the social injustice in the land. There wasn't a fairness. There wasn't righteous judges. And so when we look at this, we understand that, that Moses says, well, I have to implement the expectations of a righteous God among these people. And we need to resolve these internal conflicts to maintain the unity and the, and the cohesiveness of our society that it's necessary. Good judges are necessary. Um, it is kind of interesting that of all of the voting that we do, uh, perhaps the least understood and the least studied is the voting of local judges. Um, I would dare say that I never researched in my voting years I never researched judges and from a perspective biblically that's a huge we, we, we research and are all invested in the executive branch of our government and we aren't really invested in the judicial branch 
but from understanding God's word, what government needs to do first and foremost is judge among their own people. In addition to militarily provide protection and defense. And so those two facets of government are wrapped up in a single person. Moses, in this case. It's going to fall then onto Joshua. It's going to fall onto these men. And they have this responsibility to make sure not only that the, that the enemies outside are dealt with, but the enemy inside is dealt with. And that is injustice. That these things need to be resolved. And this doesn't go away when we get into the kingdom era, right? Um, how do we know that Solomon was the wisest? What's the first? Yeah. He, him judging between two women and a baby. Um, he was the judicial branch. And the executive branch was all wrapped up there in the one person. So there he is judging between these two women who both claim to be the mother of the same baby. He says, oh, cut the baby in half, give them each a half. <gasps> Wouldn't the media have a time with that? In the modern media, if, the, if Solomon's declaration hit the modern media like they do with Trump's off-the-wall statements, so, so they are, but <laughs> the way they hype them up, um, can you imagine the media, oh, this guy says, cut the baby in half. What kind of a leader is he? He's a wise one, the wisest one ever known. Because words are words. And they are there to elicit a reaction. And he was waiting for the reaction. Then he could tell who the real mother was. And we have forgotten that words are just words. In our political correctness, um, and they are sometimes don't mean what they mean to you, and their purpose is not understood as a standalone. And so we come to these judges, and Moses takes up this role of remediation. We're going to take care of all these problems internally. And of course, it's too much for them. Um, when they talk about having a judge over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens, you can see that they are talking about developing an entire judicial system. And this isn't individuals, that there's a judge for every 10 individuals. In that case, in this room, we would need a couple judges. Um, no, it's 10 families. And so, you know, 10 clans, if you will. And so you have these judges set up over these, these family units, and essentially the men. And uh, we find it uh, established in Moses is responsive to that. Because God blesses it and God commands him and Jethro qualified his advice in that fashion and we have them setting up the leadership and we have the judges installed and then he taught, he taught the people the law, he was the go-between between the people and God and he uh, resolve the hard cases, it says, or the difficult cases. Um, the difficult matters, the other judges just passed up the line and said, this is a really hard one, I'm not sure. Um, and uh, it came up to him. And so this is another facet of this work of the judges. Um, not just a military leader, but also one to bring justice into the land. Let's uh, move forward a little bit to... Um, <clears throat> Exodus, we want to jump forward into the uh, oh, I wrote it down. <clears throat> 
Hang on. 24. There we go. Exodus 24. I was there. I just was in the wrong chapter. Right page, wrong chapter. It says, verse 1 now, He said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship from afar. And Moses alone shall come near, Lord, but they shall not come near, nor shall the people go up with him. So the people stay back. He pulls out 70 of the elders um, along with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. And uh, they are going to encounter God. And so we find the uh, book of the covenant is going to be uh, read in verse 7. It says, they took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And he took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. And so he leads Israel in these agreements, this covenant between God and man. And remember that they had an opportunity to hear. They had an opportunity to hear God's voice, and it frightened them so deeply that they begged Moses, don't, We don't ever want to hear that again, um, or we're going to die. I mean, it made that kind of an impact on them. We'll just listen to anything you say. You say it's from God, we'll accept it. And that's what happens here. He comes and now he reads it. Instead of hearing it from God, he reads it and they are content. And they accept the fact that they will abide by it. So they set up this agreement. Verse 9, we want to look at Moses' role here. Moses went up, also Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and seventy elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and there was under his feet as were a paved work of sapphire stone. It was like the very heavy heavens in its clarity. But on the nobles of the children of Israel he did not lay his hands, so they saw God, and they ate and drank. Then the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and be there, and I will give you tablets of stone and the law and the commandments which I have written, that you may teach them. So Moses arose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up to the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. And so he understands that that mantle of being the supreme judge has to still be managed because he doesn't know how long he's going to be on that mountain. Um, and that is going to land on Aaron. And of course, Aaron doesn't do so good with it. Um, by the time Moses is coming down, Aaron has made a golden calf and said, this is the God that delivered you, and here's the altar, and we got a mess. Okay, so I don't know if Aaron was one of the judges of thousands or hundreds or tens, but um, he didn't do a very good job as the supreme judge. Uh, and so we find uh, that when Moses uh, recognizes he's going to be gone a while, he places that mantle on Aaron and her, and uh, and discloses it apparently to the 70. And we must conclude these 70 elders must be, in some level, the judges of Israel that are under his responsibility. But we come into yet another role of the judge, and that is as teacher. Come up here, and I'm going to give you the covenant, the law, that you are to teach to your people. And much of the reason we have the book of Judges, as well as the account of Moses in Exodus, Deuteronomy, and the book of Joshua is because of these men accepting the role as teacher. Now, some of them are really poor teachers. Some of them are pretty good teachers. Um, and how do they teach? Well, I think uh, the Deborah taught by song. 
I'm going to teach you to trust in the Lord by having you sing this song, the song of Deborah. Uh, very instructional. Uh, I have a lot of information there. And so we have this role that is placed upon them to teach the people. What does God require of you? And so um, here is Moses, as the Bible says, the most humble man on earth, who is given the, who takes the advice of his father-in-law. Did you hear that, Justin? He takes the advice of his father-in-law. Okay, just, sorry, I just had to throw that. If, if Cody was here, I'd harass him too. All right, he takes the advice of his father-in-law, implements it as God commands and blesses. Um, he uh, recognizes that he can't be all things to all people. He's not God. He doesn't have capacity within him. We have him uh, passing on, uh, or I should say, delegating the judgeship responsibilities. And then when he recognizes that he's not going to be available to the people, he places that responsibility onto another. And we have a man that is a teachable spirit and who is now going to be able to be used of God to teach others also. And this is how Paul communicates how we are to uh, develop the ministry of the pastor-teacher. Is that if you look at the requirements, man, if you're not a teachable person, if you're not responsive, don't put yourself up in that role. Um, you're going to be called upon to teach. You're going to be called upon to make decisions between people within the church. And that's why in Corinthians, Paul says, why are you going to the courts? Why are you going to the unsaved to find justice? If justice can't be found within the confines of your church, where's the wisdom of God for one of the premium parts of being righteous is being just? If you can't find justice within the church, then are you really the church? Why are you going to a, to a heathen court to find justice? There's got to be justice within the church. And so, yes, it falls upon the mantle of leadership to, to certainly defend, but also to judge and also to teach. And we find that this is going to be played out in different um, emphasis as we go through emphases, emphasis, plural of emphases. And we're going to find that throughout the book of Judges. Some are going to excel at this, some at this. Um, but all of them have this responsibility. And so God says, Moses, you come up here, and like your father-in-law told you, I'm going to give you the law. You teach the people the law. You make sure they know it so that you aren't just the only one. And, and you know, Moses didn't have a big book that no one else got to read. It says he read it to everyone. He read it in the hearing of everyone. Everyone says, hey, that's a great thing. We'll do it. And the idea that the judges had this secret book or this access that others didn't have um, just isn't what the Bible declares. They had access to God um, as his servant um, and a responsibility to communicate that, but they were held accountable to that just like everyone else, and everyone else had access to that information. And so when Moses comes down, he's got the tablets um, and he's got the, the law, and he's got these, these declarations, these covenant agreements. He reads them openly so that everyone knows the law. Everyone knows what's required. 
So there's no big surprise and there is no power mongering by him that I have the law and you're going to have to come to me to find out what it is. Um, you know, and, and uh, which is a far cry from our legal system today. Uh, I'll, you know, even lawyers don't know the law. And if you don't believe me, please understand why there is lawyers whose specialty is, okay, and so my lawyer is a real estate attorney and so if I bring him something else, he's like, well, I can do that. It's just, I just have to do this and this. And he has to put a little more work into it because he has to redo a little more research. When it comes to real estate, he knows the law. When it comes to some other aspects, um, he's a little weaker. And sometimes he'll say, oh, yeah, you want to do this. And he doesn't do divorces. No divorces. So, um, so certain attorneys are going to have an expert knowledge of some parts of the law and not of others. That's how mammoth our law legal system is and then you have congress who doesn't know what the law is until they pass it right so we got to pass it to know what's in it uh those kind of declarations just um we don't there's a bunch of bureaucrats who are have again a knowledge of little slices of it but the idea that we all know what the law is really we don't it is so confounding and, and mammoth that um, it is unwieldy for any one person to think that they know what the law is. But for Moses, his job was to teach the people the law, not just to implement the law upon them, but to make sure they were aware of what the law is. Let's just settle some of the problems by making you know what God expects. Here's what God expects. And now if you're taught that, you should be encountering a lot less problems because you should all be implementing, because you all declared publicly when I read it, we will do it. Well, okay. Then the workload should diminish substantially. There's a lot of pastors out there who, when I, I talked to them when I was an intern and when I was raising support to be a missionary, oh, they had this heavy, heavy, heavy workload. Like, what is your workload so heavy? I mean, I know some of your churches are a little bigger and stuff, but what's, what's so heavy on your workload? Oh, I have all these counseling sessions. Counseling. Count, counseling was the big thing in the 80s, and all pastors went to nuthetic counseling uh, classes and seminars, and, and counseling was the big thing, kind of like the bus ministry in the 70s, and, and now it's... it's Drama, I think, or something. It's the big show. It's the. So everyone's going to counseling. They're having all these counseling sessions. And I, as an intern, I was allowed to sit in on some of them if the people allowed, or I was uh, privy to some of the notes, not of the individual, but of the problem and the and the. Uh, way that was going to be addressed, and, and Pastor Turner was great to help me in that area. And, and one time, I remember we were sitting at lunch, and I just said, uh, Pastor, all these counseling sessions, doing, aren't they just because people don't want to obey the Bible, or don't know the Bible to obey it? And he just looked at me and says, well, of course. <laughs> um, teach the people the word, they agree to do it, and your workload diminishes. And the whole problem of his counseling load was premised on people not wanting to listen to Sunday's sermon and put it into their life. 
and read the Bible and implement it. That's all it boiled down to. I mean, I went, I, I was there for over a year, and I kid you not, uh, I just sat down and it's like every one of these, if they just obey God's word. That goes for marital counseling, premarital counseling. It's like just teach them the word and explain. Have them say, I will do it. And if they say, we won't do it, then say, I can't help you. Because you can't. You cannot implement justice if people don't want to do the law. And that's why lawlessness, which is penetrating our society on a scale that's, that we are difficult for us to comprehend even, that lawlessness is so horrific. Because people aren't saying, here's the law, we'll do it. They're saying, well, not a chance. Not just ignorance of the law, but I know the law and I spurn the law. That's lawlessness. And so the judge was there to instruct the people to make these judgment calls and to um, develop this part. And if you'll jump to uh, chapter 32. And, of course, this is the golden calf incident. And, again, we have several aspects of the role of judge that Moses has to engage. First of all, we have God telling him, verse 7, The Lord said to Moses, get, Go get down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. I love that. God says, They are my people no more. They're your people. And, of course, Moses has to in, in, uh, treat for them. Verse 9, I have seen this, uh, the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and indeed it is a stiff-necked people. Let me alone, my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, and I will make of you a great nation. And Moses pleaded with the Lord his God and said, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and their mighty hand? And he goes on, and he engages God on behalf of the people. And this we'll find as, remember, overwhelmingly the judge is brought out because of the outcry of God's people, because of the conditions of their circumstance, that they're harsh. And that's true, that Israel was in Egypt, the Pharaoh didn't know Joseph, comes and makes their life miserable and enslaves them. They cry out to God. In response, God takes about 40 years, 80 years to raise, 80 years to raise up the guy that's going to extract you from there, um, and so he's their response of God to their outcry. And so now we find the judge fulfilling that role. That here, these are your people. No, they're your people. Oh, they're your people now. No, Lord, please, they have to be your people. Um, and please let me cry out for them on their behalf. You responded by raising me up to their outcry. And now, since you are responsive, God, to their cry, be responsive to my pleading. And they plead for the people. And, and this is an aspect of the judgeship, and so that we plead to God on behalf of the people when they fail, when they sin, when they're deserving of being wiped out and starting over, um, that we plead the case before God and, and, and ask his patience, his mercy, his grace um, for them. And, of course, God does that, but then he also instructs God, Moses now. As judge, as the supreme judge of these people, you go 
and execute justice. You get down to those people and you distinguish between the wicked and the righteous. And that's what Moses has to do. And so he is the judge, which means he has to execute the judgment. And we often think, well, these are civil matters and, you know, whose property this is or how this should be handled. And sometimes there are judicial matters that require this person needs to be stoned to death. These people need to choose. Who are you going to choose this day? God or the calf? Life or death? And he's going to have to execute that judgment. And we're going to find that as a role of the judge. And so when we think of the government of Israel, it's wrapped up really in one person who is taking all their cues from God, and this is the way God delivers his people. Militarily, in terms of fairness and justice, in terms of being mediated between you and God, and in terms of executing justice in the land. It was boiled down to one man, but he was taking his directives directly from God. And that's how it's going to play out from Moses all the way to Saul. This is how a theocracy works, is through the judges. And so we're going to see um, him, and again, sometimes we're not told almost anything, just that so-and-so judged. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means all these things. There was a military facet. There was a judicial facet. Uh, there was a teaching aspect that they had a responsibility for. There was a mediation facet. And there was an execution facet of the job. And so these judges, when they're called of God, they have to be empowered, filled by the Spirit to do this. And, uh, and Moses becomes really the... Um, principal example of what a judge of, all, of God's people is like. And when we bring these principles into our setting that is a holy nation, a peculiar people, um, and we recognize the leadership that God establishes, um, that uh, this is not a light duty, that um, it's easy for me to say, well, my job is to just teach God's word. Well, that really isn't all there is to leading God's people. Um, and uh, over the course of my ministry, I've had those times where I've had to make calls and uh, people have, say, oh, you don't have the authority to do that. Uh, well, as the shepherd of a flock, I do. In accordance with being an under-shepherd of the capital S, Shepherd Jesus Christ that there is that aspect of overseeing. That's one of the terms for pastor, elder, bishop, overseer. Those all refer to the same office. And we're going to look at some of that. Well, how do we make that work? Well, we need to learn <laughs> the covenant. We need to learn the law. We need to learn scripture. Declare that we will do it and then actually do it find justice within our ranks, execute it when necessary, uh, when it is violated and uh, flagrantly disregarded, we have to execute it. We have to execute. And when Jesus said, 
you know, if you have to excommunicate, do it. You know, understand you have to have the right spirit in it, but you have to do it. Um, and they're not fun things to do. I don't think Moses was very happy going down the mountain this trip. I have to go down there and decide between them. And just like they weren't very happy when they had to go through the tents and stab people through in their tents because of their fornication. Um, but we have to execute judgment. Premised upon teaching, premised upon a covenant, and upon God's directives, which we have in his word. Um, and then when we look at the defense, a shepherd's role is to defend the flock. Is one of the primary roles of a shepherd, correct? Defend the flock. What does that mean for, spiritually for the church? Well, one of my primary jobs defends you from false teaching, from wolves in sheep's clothing that would come in and devour the flock, the Bible says. And so much of these principles and requirements have come over into the role of the pastor-teacher and, and the whole mediation that I'm here to, to, I know that you are a, we are a body of priests, um, but realize that even for Israel, who God says, I want to make you a nation of priests, um, and who had a priestly role later on, that it was still Moses that had to do some mediation directly to God. And so uh, this is the leadership that God expects over his people and expects his people to respond positively to. And uh, I want to finish up Moses by talking about uh, <laughs> what happens when your family gets in the way. What happens when your family figures, well, you're an older brother, older sister, um, how are they going to respond to the judge? Uh, and that's going to come out a little bit later on um, with some of the other judges uh, about family members and how to engage them. And, of course, what happens when, and I'm not going to go to there in the text. I only got four minutes. Um, what happens when Moses' brother and sister, sister particularly, go in there and think they can straighten out Moses? She gets leprosy. Wham! Like that. Um, be careful about what you're doing against the Lord's anointed. You know, the Lord says, I set this man apart. He is the judge. He is the one who has all of this responsibility. And you come in and criticize him. Remember, what did they criticize him for? Do you remember? For getting a, a wife? from among the mixed multitude. He took a, a wife later on in his life, and uh, sister didn't like it. She wasn't of one of the tribes of Israel. She was among the mixed multitude coming out and was critical. God says, oh, no, 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 no. And so Moses has to, again, pray on her behalf. She is healed. And we have that establishment that, uh, and I wanted to really counterbalance. Look at how Jethro treats Moses and compared to later on, even after all the things we see through all the wilderness wanderings, through all of that, to how his siblings treat him later on. Um, and, and so we find that this Jethro becomes a pattern we need to follow and say, well, if God's at work in this person's life, I can maybe lend him some advice, 
But it's all going to be qualified by if the Lord commands you, if the Lord leads you, if the Lord wants you to do this. Um, here's what I would advise versus a critical spirit that is not really advising anything. It's just being critical. And God says, I won't permit that. I won't tolerate that. Even if you're a close family member, I won't tolerate that. That criticalness of the one that is judging over you. They're all going to make mistakes. Moses made them. That's why he didn't enter the promised land. Okay, Moses had to carry that. All the judges are going to make mistakes. Some of them are going to be huge mistakes from our perspective. But God still says they are the judge of the land. You honor them. You recognize their purpose and the great weight they carry on your behalf so that we will have peace. We'll have a relationship with God. We'll have the blessings of God. And we'll have the abundance that God's provided us in the covenant agreement. And, uh, and so we have all of this uh, connected, really, to Moses' job as the first judge of Israel. And we're going to look at the second judge the next two weeks. Okay, and that's be Joshua, of course. But before it goes, let, uh, let's uh, go to Lord in prayer before we finish up tonight. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for the opportunity to look into your word and to consider uh, its historicity and, and what happened then. We looked at the principles but Lord, we also know that it has application here, that while we are not the nation of Israel, we can see similar uh, requirements and commands for your church. That is the same because it is trying to bring order to the chaos of a group of sinners gathered together and identifying themselves as a body. And yes, Lord, we thank you that you've made us saints by the blood of Jesus Christ, yet we know that old nature still lingers and has influence over us. And we pray that you might continue to raise up for yourself those that would help us to rule over it and to cause us to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.